This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with your hosts Robin Mob, Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may happen to be. And it's the uh, beautiful uh, 3rd of uh, February 2015, and um, 150 years ago today, the... um, Officers and crew of the Shenandoah were getting um, into well into their second week uh, in Melbourne. But uh, before we get into the events of uh, 150 years ago, um, we need to talk about the the commemoration events of, in fact, the the last week. And um, it's been tremendously exciting. It, it has been it has been tremendously exciting for us hardcore Shenandoah fans. That is, yes, uh, yeah. Look, it, it was it was. Almost, almost quite weird. I, I think I might have mentioned last week to, to think that you pick the most niche of niche subjects, and, and then suddenly you turn up and there's a, you know, a fair few hundred people um, happily commemorating it. Um, so uh, when we when we recorded our last episode, which was actually on the twenty fifth uh, of January, we hadn't at that point uh, gone to the um, the lecture which was given at the Pirate's Tavern at Seaworks in Williamstown, uh, very close to where the ship would have docked and also very close to the Steve Irwin. Uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't been to that lecture. And um, there was two speakers at that lecture. There was um, Sam Craghead, who's uh, an American from the Museum of the Civil War. Um, and in also, Richmond, Virginia. In, in Richmond, Virginia. And also uh, Dr. Angus Curry, who's, uh, who wrote one of the sources that we've uh, he- very heavily relied on, um, the officers of the CSS Shenandoah. And I, I wasn't aware that, that Angus Curry was, in fact, an Australian, but he, he did his studies at La Trobe. Um, yes, and uh, you may be aware that we've been uh, using his book uh, in previous episodes, yes. Rob's held it up to the microphone numerous times. And in fact, I'll, I'll do so again. I'll he's do, do so he's again. doing it now. And yes, it was published in 2006 by uh, the University of Melbourne Press, which probably would have given us a hint. Uh, <laughs> he, he's a local. And it was a fascinating talk by, by both of them. They, they recounted the story of the Shenandoah so far. And uh, Angus mainly focused on uh, what happened when the Shenandoah got to Melbourne and uh, Sam gave a very good overview of uh, where the Shenandoah had come from and where it was going to, which was up to the whaling grounds. Well, now now again, this is spoilers, but uh, now there were a number of the Sea Shepherd crew um, in the the audience. And in fact, I I somewhat suspect that the the Pirates Tavern is is not unknown to them. I, I, I got the impression that they, they weren't entering it for I the first I think there's a well-beaten <laughs> path from the uh, dock where the sea worm was down to the Pirates Tavern. All, all 200 metres of it, yes. It, it's about as close as close as you could get, and, and certainly it would be the um, the closest venue to the Steve Irwin um, supplying uh, liquid refreshment. Yes. Um, so there are a number, and, and uh, I have to say Sam Craighead um, shamelessly, um, you know... Um, 
uh, yeah, um, to talk to the to the Sea Shepherd people when he quoted uh, uh, when the the Shenandoah got up to the Arctic Circle and um, captured the Delphine in the the that might have been even been in, in, in the in the Russian Arctic, and the Delphine was the one where I believe it was Sidney Smith Lee came out with the deathless words that um, the Confederacy have allied with the whales and the, um, the, the the creatures of the deep, and that all nation is rebelling against the Union. And um, so, uh, so Sam Craighead certainly um, certainly uh, played up to the uh, the Sea Shepherd attendees uh, with with that quote. Um, I, I thought the most fascinating part of um, Angus Curry's presentation was was when he said that that um, there was like Shenandoah fever in um, in eighteen sixty four in Melbourne, a, a little bit like the admittedly rather larger fever that happened a hundred years later when 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 the the Beatles visited Melbourne. The Beatles when they came to Australia was a absolute phenomenon. Yeah, in Adelaide. Apparently, 300,000 people came out to see the Beatles uh, in their motorcade driving from the airport to their hotel, which was something like a third of the population of the entire state. Well, look, again, it it, it wasn't like that was the Shenandoah, but um, I I think I saw one estimate that that 5,000 people had had visits on board the Shenandoah, which which was five percent of the population of, of, of Melbourne at that and time. And by the way, the Shenandoah was out in the roads. It wasn't um, it wasn't docked. You had to hop in a boat to go out to the to go out to it. So it wasn't like people would just go down and uh, jump on board. So- and uh, in our, our our friend Mr. Whittle actually does write um, complaining about the number of visitors that came on board in that time. Something like four thousand of them yes. in the space of a week, and I think they got heartily sick of showing people around by the end of it. Um, and and, and so the, the point that, that Angus Curry made was that. Um, there's no real explanation for this level of hysteria. It, it wasn't that the Confederacy was particularly uh, popular. Um, Interestingly, I was looking in uh, some of the amazingly detailed documentation that Barry Crompton from the Australian-American Civil War Roundtable has put together about yep. the visit. We've, Rob and I have, I was going to say, been literally devouring uh, all the uh, documentation that we got from him uh, last week, but we've actually been metaphorically. Yeah, together. yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, he makes the uh, the very interesting distinction between Melbourne and Sydney at the time. Okay. Sydney, of course, being settled first in Australia in 1788, that was uh, the conservative older town, and Melbourne was the young, brash upstart. What? And that's very interesting because it, 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 that's almost the opposite to the way it is it is today. You know, where 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 Melbourne is the stuffy company town and and Sydney's a lot more Hollywood. So, um, but 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 it does make a lot of sense given that Melbourne as a city was only twenty years old at that time and it was founded upon gold. Well, by by this stage, the gold was was really flowing in, so that would have added to that sort of brash uh, mentality and. That's why his contention is there was more of a sympathy towards the uh, Confederate cause 
as being the rebels. Yes. Uh, compared to the more conservative and staid Sydney at the time. And uh, some yeah. of this is reflected in uh, the newspapers of the time and also some of the letters to the newspapers as well. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit like that very famous saw from um, uh, Sellers and Yeats, 1066 and all that, about the, the, uh, the, the British Civil War, the English Civil War, that the, the Roundheads, um, Cromwell's men, were right but revolting and um, the Cavaliers were... Um, Wrong but romantic. Wrong but romantic. Yes, thank you. Because she spells in the book W R O M A T. I see. The other reason why I think there was great excitement in Melbourne at the time about the visit of a uh, Confederate warship is several years earlier a Russian warship visited Melbourne. Uh, there you go. Now, now, um, now the Russian it was commanded by a Russian admiral whose name is just on the tip of my tongue, but but maybe maybe you could refresh me there, Michael. His name was Admiral Andrei Popov, which is a very yeah. That's that's a that's a name of a Russian admiral from Central Castle. I, I, I swear there was a Russian swimmer called Andrei Popov just a few years ago. Yeah. So um, it was the flagship of the Pacific Squadron. It was a, a ship called the Bogater, and it made a so-called friendly visit to Melbourne in 1863. But uh, there was a bit of consternation that uh, while that ship was there, they were making a secret count of all the shipping and taking soundings and mapping the uh, coastline, which I think any... Any any good naval ship in a, in a foreign port would do a bit of, a bit of research. But... Where where the uh, consternation came was afterwards, a Polish deserter left the ship in Shanghai, which is which was what its next destination, and made a very very interesting revelation, and that is that there were secret. He was an he was an officer, by the way, this okay. uh, Polish right. deserter, and Poland uh, was part of the Russian Empire at the time, which is why although he obviously he's not a, a terribly loyal part. But, <laughs> yes, uh... yes, and there were secret sealed orders given to Admiral Popov, which was that if Britain joined the Confederate side or recognised the Confederacy, Russia would join the Union in war. And the orders were to sink British naval targets if this happened. And of course, by British naval targets in those days, the colony of Victoria or any of the colonies in Australia were British. Yes, and and, and totally reliant on on the Navy for protection. So when this was revealed, there was quite a bit of... uh, Excitement about the fact that the Russians had come, could yes. easily come, a, a warship turned It wasn't even the Russians are coming, the Russians had come. That they'd been and went. Yes. And they could possibly come again. So all of a sudden, when you have a Confederate cruiser come into Melbourne, uh, it gives it a whole bigger political dimension because uh, the deserter also revealed that uh, if there was going to be... Uh, uh, if the Union did uh, join with the Russians, the Russians could easily shell and destroy Melbourne, Sydney and Hobart, coastal batteries, and presumably yep. lob a few shells into the into the town as well, and uh, destroy a lot of uh, shipping. So 
this caused a lot of uh, fear and consternation. And look, look, you 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 can't even say um, there's a there's a bit of an urban legend in in Melbourne that that we we, we built Fort Gillibrand to to protect us from the Ruskies and and ho 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 what a what a silly thing this was to do, but um it, well yes it was. Uh, a bit silly in, in, in reference to the Rus- the Ruskies, although less so than as you've just explained. But in fact, um, Australia has had had you know it was, it was pointed out with, with with the fall of Singapore in World War Two that Australia was in fact incredibly uh, reliant on the protection of the British Navy, and when the British Navy um, in Singapore was was by and large sunk, um, you know Australia was in in danger of um, of invade of, of being invaded, not as it happened by the Russians but by the Japanese, and in fact um, Japanese midget submarines uh, attacked attacked Sydney, and of course. Um, the Japanese bombers bombed Darwin, so it's 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 not really all that far fetched to think of um, you know the, the the colonists of Victoria who are a long way away from anywhere and, and not in terribly great numbers would be worried about about foreign warships just just lobbing in um, very much uninvited to play their their friendly or or whatever whatever visits. And don't forget that uh, the colony of Victoria and Melbourne at the time had staggering quantities of precious precious gold. Precious, precious gold. Well, um, yes, but it, a lot of it in Ballarat. So I think a, a Russian, uh, a Russian warship would have had a, you know, some difficulty. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have been as welcome as the officers of the CSS Shenandoah who went up to Ballarat. The officers of the CSS Shenandoah, I think, when they did go four hundred feet below the ground, um, decided that actually this gold mining lark was, uh, was 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 not all that easy. Um, anyway, we we so we. We uh, yeah got, got got great enjoyment um, from uh, from from those lectures, um, and uh, there's going to be a a, uh, a conference, a one day conference at the Williamstown RSL the uh, the weekend after next, and of course there's the the Buccaneers Ball, which is uh, the reenactment, which is um, coming up on Saturday. And uh, Michael and myself went in and uh, got very nice um, costumes, uh, complete with top hats. And uh, well, our wives have also got themselves ball gowned up, so we'll be uh, we'll be reporting on uh, on that next week. It's going to be very authentic. I'm just going to let you know that I'm currently engaged in my own special operation this week. It's called Operation Waistcoat. Okay, yes, and that is, um, I think I look rather flash in my costume. Yes, but uh, I'm I'm going. We're both going as. as, as, as leading men of the city of Ballarat as they would have been in 1860. I think, Rob, you look a bit more respectable than me. Uh, what what you're saying by that is I have grey, I have a grey beard. Thank you no, very no, much. No, no, no. I'm saying that uh, <laughs> your the, the cut of your jib is is of a uh, a respectable uh, burger of the town, I believe. But I'm, I'm in the checked pants. Oh, okay, okay. And my waistcoat's a little bit uh, a bit more florid. Uh, the other thing is my waistcoat just fit, and at the at, when I tried it on at the costume place, I thought, well, this is okay, except I at, really can't sit at the moment or bend or okay, all, all, all the things. Heaven forbid, dance yes, because it's yeah. cool. So I've been on Operation Waistcoat for the for the last week, and and will continue up to. Uh, the ball uh, on Saturday. Cinderella, you shall go to the ball in, in, in your waistcoat. Well, um, I, I I fought a, a terrible losing battle with my waistcoat and um, they said that they would alter it to 
So I, I, I took the decision that the costume people could alter the waistcoat rather than me altering, al- altering <laughs> well, myself. Well, that's another approach. And... So we'll definitely post some... Oh, yes, yes. Now, if you're thinking this is a rather funny discussion for radio, for podcasting, um, there will be photos posted on, I think, definitely our Facebook page. Uh, maybe not our website, because I think we're trying to keep the website for the podcast themselves, but um, there'll be pictures of us in toppers and uh, and cravats and our wives in ball gowns. All like, all like over. bells of the ball. Like bells of the ball. There, there will be uh, apparently about 60 or 70 people. Which, which will replicate the attendance at the original uh, original do quite well. Uh, and uh, we're hoping, and it sounds like, uh, most of the people at the ball are going to be dressed uh, appropriately in period attire. So it's going to be lots of fun. Well, the, the, the joke will be on us if, if we're the only people who turn up. Um, but we, we also, the, the, um, the other thing is that uh, we uh, are not actually staying at, the, I think it's a Royal Hotel. It's cra- the, the ball is being held in Craig's Royal Hotel. Craig's Royal Hotel. Which is one of the uh, oldest and most historic hotels in Ballarat. Yep. And uh, we're staying at a another boutique hotel four doors down. Which is good, because that gives us, 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 and perhaps more importantly our wives, four doors worth of promenading to in, in our... I just hope a, a good citizen of Ballarat walks past and allowing me to take off my topper in, uh, in salutation. Yes, that'll be fun. Okay, so... Um, that's the, 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 you know, the, I think it's a sesquicentenary, although don't quote me on that. Um, Sam, Sam Craighead quoted that. For, I think for, it for, is, for, yes. yes. It's a, 150 years is a sesquicentenary. And, and Sam Craighead said that, yes, they, they had special training at the uh, Museum of the Civil War in order to say that. Um, so that, that, that's a state of play in 2015 and, and very exciting it is. And I have to say, um, Ponape and Alaska, you have got something to live up to in terms of, uh, sesquicentenary uh, commemorations of the voyage of the Shenandoah. Um, Tristan de Cunha may already have just beaten the pants off us. We'll, we'll have to do some research on that. Um, but without any further ado... But, well, um, I, could, I could say um, at Tristan de Cunha they could have had 100% of the population turn out for the uh, yes, celebrations. Yes, it would have been. Well, if they, if they, had, if they had 15 people, they would have had 5%. But, um, yeah, um, um, yeah good, uh, good for them. Now... It's probably, given that we're, we're already more than halfway through the episode, um, might be good if we, we got up to um, uh, errors, omissions, additions and attributions. Oh, um, okay. Well, what do you have for us? Well, um, a few weeks ago, um, I said that uh, we were talking about the Christmas dinner that they had on board the Shenandoah. Oh, and... this is the one where they uh, they had a great big pig. Uh, yes, they had a 120-pound pig, which... Um, uh, translates to 50 kilograms in our modern modern kilograms or 120 pounds in our modern pounds. So that, that for, a, for a shipboard, that's a reasonably big... But they also had um, a geese, uh, ducks, chickens. Um, they, had, they had rather a lot of, of meat, to be frank. And um, given that the, uh, the Sea Shepherd is uh, the closest possible equivalent... Um, I was, the, yeah, we're, we're saying they're a modern day analog in some ways to what the in, in some ways, but but without the without the pro slavery bit. Um, but I thought I'd try and um, work out what you would have for Christmas dinner on the Sea Shepherd. And uh, when we visited the Sea Shepherd, um, I was thinking of asking uh, the very nice chap who did the tour. Uh, who also turned up for the lecture later that night, but they were heaving on the Sea Shepherd um, at that um, at the the maritime exhibition because they were a big part of it. So they had three groups on the ship at any one time. Um, so anyway, I didn't ask a question, but I did find a a lovely um, web posting from the Sea Shepherd Org AU, 
And uh, now it's actually from the previous year, but I won't that, let, let that stop me. So that's from Saturday, 4th of January, 2014, and it's by um, Raffaella Tolicetti. Okay, so this is um, the Christmas um, Christmas lunch or what that they had uh, on Christmas Day of 2014, so of 2013. We start cooking on the 24th with a special meal for Christmas Eve, including tortellini in broth, an Italian tradition. On the morning of the 25th, we have a big breakfast with vegan sausages, hash browns, tofu and hollandaise sauce, English muffins, fruit rolls and buns. Then we have a unique meal at 2pm with every table of the mess filled with food. I asked the crew what they wanted for the Christmas menu and aside the traditional roasted root stuffing and tofurkey, we got to- a... Sorry. Tofurkey. Tofurkey? Tofurkey, yes. I, I, I can only imagine that that is turkey equivalent made from tofu. Made from tofu. You know, I used to live in the Middle East and uh, in, in some countries there... Um, they won't serve pork bacon. Yep. But they will do turkey bacon. Yes. Which we used to call facon. Yeah. But this is this is going to the next level. Isn't going it? to the next so level. Where what's it called again? It's called tofurkey. Tofurkey. Okay. Sorry. Go on, Rob. I'm, um, I'm just still trying to think about tofurkey. And okay, and tofurkey. We got a few random requests like tiramisu and banoffee pie. I don't think that's random. I think that's totally reasonable. I, I do. Request for tiramisu and banoffee oh, yeah. pie any day of the week. I guess Christmas is just what you want it to be. Our ships are vegan, and on a day like Christmas where tradition overtakes common sense and is cause of the slaughter of millions of innocent beings for foie gras or other meats, it's important to show that you can have exactly the same amount of fun and nice food as anyone else without the cruelty to it. Not quite as much crackling though, I don't uh, think. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if tofurkey would uh, would crackle, and, and there's no tof ham either, or um, I have to say, that sounds like an absolutely lovely Christmas dinner, and the only thing I can think of that would really improve it would be a 120 pound pig, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I won't make fun of um, the uh, wonderful people on the, the Sea Shepherd, because uh, yes, they they are they are sticking to their principles, and um, so they are they are out there protecting sea creatures in a, in a vegan way. So, and I think most most of that um, most of that Christmas lunch sounded absolutely lovely. It's set perhaps for the vegan sausages. And, no, no, and I'm the, sorry, <laughs> the, the, the tofurkey. Uh, that, that's kind of scary. Think yeah. about the banoffee pie and the tiramisu. Come on, come on, that would have been lovely. <laughs> Anyway, we are two thirds of the way through our episode, and we haven't really got on to uh, on to eighteen sixty five. So, um, Michael, uh, you you have been um, scouting your way through the the very many pamphlets of um, yeah. Of... You know, we've we've got a lot of sources for uh, the visit, but nothing comes near the, the the books that we'd gathered together nothing comes near the amazing material that Barry Crompton from the Australian American Civil War round table had put together and it's just been an absolute pleasure reading through this material over the last week it's, yes, it's, we're, it's, we're, we're, it's we're buttering him him up because we're about to thoroughly use all of his material but uh, but yeah yes. attributions attributions yes he's 
he's gathered together, and and you can now look on uh, on Google newspapers. You can you can do a good search and find uh, a lot of newspapers from the period. But but he didn't do that to get to get this stuff. He yeah. did it the old school way, which was yeah. to go into the uh, state library of Victoria and 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 probably look look at the real things. Mm, um, mm. We'd done it the uh, the the new way or the the. The internet way by having a look on Google, but we didn't get any, anywhere near as far as he did. He's put together a amazing collection of the reports of newspapers of the of the time. We'd found a really good one that was done by a newspaper called the Melbourne Age on the twenty seventh of January. So yep. This was only a couple of days after the Shenandoah arrived, and it's amazingly comprehensive report about what had uh, what had gone on in the past. So I presume Mrs. Nichols must have gone over and met a, uh, <laughs> a, a reporter and told everything. Her husband, Captain Nichols, must have as well. And clearly members of uh, the officers and the crew must have given a fairly detailed report because it goes from the very beginning of the journey all the way up to Melbourne. And back in those days, newspapers, because they weren't able to put photographs uh, on their pages... Pretty much, if they wanted to tell a story in uh, many, many column inches, they 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 did. Yes, if you say a picture's worth a thousand words, well, they they really believed that. They put ten thousand words in. They, they would put ten thousand words in. Yeah. Yeah. So there were there were several newspapers at the time in Melbourne. There was a newspaper called the Argus, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, but which lasted till the nineteen fifties. There's also a, a paper called The Herald, which kind of still exists today. It, it amalgamated with a... It was an afternoon paper and yes. it amalgamated with a morning paper called The Sun. So it's now called The Herald Sun. Yes. And uh, the final newspaper is called The Age, The yes. Melbourne Age. And that does exist today. So mm. it, it stretches mm. back all the way to the 1850s. Amazingly, on Google, you can see most of the issues back all uh, until that time. And... Uh, they all reported in various ways on the visit of the Shenandoah, and there were interesting battles fought in the letters to the editor page well, from both sides in these papers as well. Again, because you know, then as now, um, the the Herald, Herald Sun, um, and the Age were, were very different uh, newspapers. The Herald Sun now, of course, is a, is a Murdoch uh, newspaper, uh, whereas the uh, the Age is uh, the, the Fairfax Group, who also owned the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia. So I'm I'm guessing that the Age would have been again the the Herald and again the the Argus, because uh, that was the way it rolled. Yeah. So and, and as I said, they had. They had also letters to the editor that were running in uh, the papers as well, and I guess some of those would reflect the uh, views of the, the readers and the views of the owners of the paper on, on which letters they ran. There was a lot of uh, objection to the Shenandoah coming from, yep. from the readers, and there was a lot of objection to the extraordinary hospitality that was being shown to the uh, the officers and crew as well. Well, they did. Um, now, as of as of Tuesday, um, 1864, which is where we're up to strictly. 1865. Uh, 1865. Thank you very much. Um, they they had so they had been to the Melbourne Club, which I think I mentioned last week is is the toffee nosedest establishmentiest uh, place in Melbourne, pretty much. So they they went to the Melbourne Club, not to an official dinner because that might have been uh, that might have been not quite the thing, because the Melbourne Club was. 
very strongly identified with the government, but they went to a private member's dinner at, at the Melbourne Club. Oh, and that caused that caused a lot of consternation. There was a, a very interesting letter in the uh, in the Age. It said, Sir, Sir, is it true that the Melbourne Club are this day to give a dinner to the officers of the Confederate ship Shenandoah? If so, am I correctly informed that I am told that all the judges of the Supreme Court, some of the county court judges and many leading officials are members of this club? Assuming that the above two questions are in the affirmative, what are we to think of the taste, the judgment or the decency of this society in thus almost publicly feasting persons towards whom, as towards whose opponents, all loyal Englishmen are bound to observe a strict neutrality. I, I think that's a very ingenious piece of special pleading because it's, it's not an almost public dinner. It's, it's a private dinner. And while all of those judges and members of the Supreme Court certainly were members of the Melbourne Club, there's nothing to say that they actually were were going to that dinner. So I, I think I, I can I can um, feel the sentiments, if not the actual person of Mr. Blanchard, the U.S. consul behind that letter. Yes, it went on to another another letter that appeared said uh, a correspondent in another column asks if it be true that members of the Melbourne Club yesterday evening. So that was actually the thirty uh, first of January was the, yep. the dinner at the Melbourne Club feasted the officers of the Shenandoah. The fact is undoubted, and moreover, the invitation to the Melbourne Club was given before permission to remain in Melbourne. More than 48 hours was extended to the Confederate cruiser. So I think we've got uh, the, the Union sympathisers saying that the, uh, the Conservative establishment are showing their, their colours towards the Confederacy here. Yes, whereas, again, presumingly... Well, it's always been a little bit difficult to work out because the, I guess the conservative element were you know, looking to recognise the Confederacy just because just it was good, would be good for business. Um, it would get the, um, uh, the cotton flowing again, I guess, whereas the, the working class or middle class interest would be um, you know, more, more anti-slavery and therefore more, more pro-union. Um, but yes, that does certainly seem like the Melbourne Club jumped the gun a bit. Although you can always is- issue an invitation, and if, if, a, if a chap has to tell a chap that um, a chap's been thrown out of town, then you know you can you can deal with that uh, on a on a, on a later basis. There was a uh, a fantastic letter that I found too, which was uh, headed "Pirate in the Bay." So oh, these these. Whoever wrote this letter is is clearly saying to the editor of The Age what they feel. It's entitled A Pirate in the Bay. And it says, and this, this was from the 30th of January. Sir, immense excitement is said to be caused in Melbourne by the arrival in our waters of a vessel said to be a Confederate cruiser named Shenandoah. And this... I think the, the, the writer of this letter comes to the crux of the issue that's going to happen, uh, the diplomatic problem that's going to occur in, in the coming weeks. If this craft had simply been a Confederate, built, manned and supplied by Southerners and engaged alone in Southern interests, little or no notice would have been taken of her. I'm not quite sure of that. <laughs> but virtuous indignation arises in the breast of every honest Englishman at the fact of her being an English vessel, 
armed, her guns are stamped with the crown, equipped and manned by British subjects, sailing under false colours, and assuming a false name, as you can note on her stern. So clearly on her stern you could still see... I, I believe Sea King. Mr Blanchard sent somebody out to look for the Sea King logo and found it. So uh-huh. that's, again, I think that, yes. And he feels humiliated and ashamed to confess that they are really his countrymen. Her own officers confess to her being British-built and that she has never been in any other than a British port. Can she show any other than British register, any clearance but British? Are they engaged in southern interests? Would the position of the Confederacy be enhanced by one single act of theirs? I say emphatically no, not if they destroyed every federal ship now floating in these seas. It would and will affect the poorer classes of this colony more than the northern states. And he goes on to say that uh, he believes that the ship is illegitimately there and is more or less a pirate and should be uh, confined in the port and not allowed to leave. Well, now, of course, Mr. Waddell would have said that uh, it's perfectly ordered order because um, he handed £45,000 to a chap he just happened to meet off Los Desertos Islands in the Madeiras and that, therefore, he had bought the ship on the high seas, not in port, uh, fair and square. Uh, But uh, will uh, will the International Court after the war uh, follow this argument? Uh, Well... uh, We we shall find out in due course. (laughs) So... Um, we probably have to wrap up about now. Yep. Next, in our next episode, apart from the uh, excitement of the ball, which yes. we'll be talking about, and uh, whether indeed the buttons on my waistcoat will manage to... <laughs> uh, we are going to have to have an update on, on Operation Waistcoat, I think. That, yes. that, that, that's a terrific name. It sounds a bit like you know, Operation Market Garden or, or something, Operation Barbarossa, something like that. So, yeah, apart from uh, talking about the glamour of the Buccaneers ball... We'll go into more detail in our next episode about the diplomatic ructions that happened in Melbourne. There was a very, very energetic US consul. Yes, Mr. Blanchard, yes. And uh, he was doing his absolute utmost to uh, keep the ship confined when it had uh, first come into the port. And it placed the, uh, the government here in a bit of a bind, and in particular the British governor... Governor Darling. Yes, I have to say, I, I always think of Governor Darling as in um, the, the Darling on Blackadder. Captain uh, Darling, Captain yes, Darling. Blackadder yes. goes forth. Yes. But uh, this we shall discuss in our yes. next episode. Oh, we, look, we, we've got way too much to cover now. I think we'll be, we'll be saving some of these up for the long summer stroke winter evening, depending on where you are in the world, when uh, yeah, we have a lot more, lot more episodes to fill. But for today, that is your lot. So this has been Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Whale, with Robert Mob, Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm, I'm Rob. And I'm Mob, and tally-ho. Uh, tally-ho, ahoy. <laughs> <laughs>